Welcome to Originality, the show where we explore the roots of creative genius and talk to those geniuses about what they do and why they are and how they explore all things creative. We're your hosts, Aline Sims, whose pronouns are she, her, and I'm Kay Tempest Bradford. My pronouns are also she, her. And today we are joined by someone very special. Please introduce yourself. Hi, uh, my name is uh, Whitney Beltran. I go by Strix pretty much everywhere with everyone, so please call me that. Uh, She, her, and I am a project narrative director for AAA video games. So I have a winding path to to get to where I am, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, But I, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I do. I have a little bit of a background in academia, which I bring to that work, which is really useful. And I make believe about dragons and make them say things. <laughs> that is the best. Dragons are the best. I want a dragon best friend. <laughs> well, welcome, Strix. And um, before we get started, I just want to say one of the reasons why uh, I wanted to bring you onto the podcast is because we've been friends for a little while. And um, I asked you about your journey to becoming a narrative designer uh, a few years ago at the last in-person XOXO festival. Mm-hmm. And what you had to say was like so amazing. I was like, clearly we need to get you on this podcast uh, so you can talk about this. Because I feel like, especially um, for folks who don't necessarily like come from a uh, a background where they've been like, I'm going to do X. Like I have decided I'm seven years old and I'm doing X and this is what's happening. Um, How exactly they can get into different fields like video games, um, TTRPGs, you know, all the different things. And Mm -hmm. when you were talking about your sort of windy path to it, I was like, yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing we love to talk about where it's like, (laughs) you know, not necessarily that this was something that you planned, but that like all of your skills sort of came together for this. So that's why We wanted to bring you on to Originality, so welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. So let's start out by, yes, um, talking about how it is that you have come to be in narrative design for video games. Yeah, so I'll start with the work that I currently do, which is heading up the narrative on on a AAA game, uh, one that is under NDA, so I can't really say a whole lot about it uh, other than, like, you know, what I do in the day-to-day. But basically, as narrative director... Um, I touch all points of narrative in the game. So that's not just writing the dialogue or, you know, doing the storytelling beats Hollywood style. It's how do these mechanics fit with our narrative themes? How does audio hook up in our environment to do this cool spooky thing uh, that adds spooky ambience to our themes uh, when we're doing this thing? You know, how do we do uh, AI animation to match a character's mood because that's storytelling um i i have i have friends in every department shall we say (laughs) that i talk to regularly because being a narrative director is kind of like being an orchestra pit director you everyone is so skilled and they're doing amazing things and they're all doing really different things and you have to try to weave them together into this coherence and this resonance that's going to feel really good by the time the player picks it up and plays it. And it feels like an intelligent piece of art that is really saying something to them. Uh, so that's my job. And I uh, never thought I would be here um, when I was younger. So my background is I came from a, you know, not very well off mixed uh, Hispanic uh, Latino family um, down in Southern California. And my parents didn't have any money for me, my education. 
and so they were like, look, we want you to go to college. In fact, we might consider you a failure if you don't go to college, but we can't pay for it. So get a scholarship and go to college. And then you should probably pick a job that's really secure. So like, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, go do that. And I was the kind of kid that took everything really seriously. Like, I was just like, all right, I'm on my mission. I'm going to go to college. And I was thinking about this in like fourth grade, fifth grade, right? Um, And I did all the testing and I did all the AP classes and I did all the varsity sports and, you know, literally everything that I could get my grubby hands on to do academically, I did because I was determined to go to college. Um, It was the most important thing in my life. Um, And then I did. Uh, I became a National Merit National Hispanic Scholar, which means your tuition is paid for uh, at almost any school of your choosing. So I did it. Yay, mom. Um, (laughs) It was a big deal because I was the first person in my family to ever like go to college and get a degree ever on on either side of my family. So it was a big deal. Um, And I got to college and I was like, okay, real serious time. Do the serious major. And Uh, I decided that I wanted to be in environmental policy. So work for the EPA, you know, do good. That's always been very important to me is to do good. But, you know, work with the environment. Um, Be in Washington or like, you know, be an EPA lawyer and like attack those guys, you know, know, pouring toxic sludge into the river in NorCal. Um, You know, just like that was my vision for myself. That's who I thought I wanted to be. However, during that time, I was also ignoring this other part of myself that uh, that lived in in parallel with what was going on, and that was my writer self. So I was a pretty lonely kid. We moved around a lot uh, when we when we were younger, and I coped by having very strong imaginary worlds, um, and I wrote them down. Uh, and then when the internet came, I was able to write them in in relationship with other people, like play by post uh, role playing games, and that was like, ooh, I was like very exhilarating. And so I just did that. And my last two years of high school, I was actually in um, a very selective creative writing program um, that you tried out for and got into. It was called Aegis. Uh, And the focus was, you know, you get all your core competencies for high school. And also you have to enter poetry contests. You have to enter writing contests. You have to work on your prose. And we did that. We worked on our prose every single day, like every single day. Um, and that kind of gave me the foundational skills for what I use today. But also, I remember, I think it was my junior year, I won my very first prize for poetry. So there's this like competition somewhere in Oklahoma. And we all just was required to apply. So I was like, here are my best poems. And I won third place. And two of my classmates won first and second place. Uh, so I was very competitive at that time. Again, college, rah, rah, rah. Uh, and I was like, I'm not the best. What? I, I got third place. What? But at the same time, one of the like silly, really like rewards for winning third place was this notebook that they gave me. And it eventually arrived in the mail and I held it in my hands. And I was like, wait a minute. I sense a transmutation here. I have transmuted my words into this physical object that that I have earned. I earned this with words. And this like little tiny light bulb went in my head. And I was like, I like that feeling. (laughs) Uh, And then I ignored it again. So um, I did creative writing classes in university. I think I got a a minor 
Um, but I was still really determined to be in the EPA up until I sat down for the LSAT, which is the, the law test that you take to get into law school. And I literally just had like a, a crisis of conscience, like right there, right there in that room with my pencil in my hand. And I went, what am I doing with my life? I don't want to be a lawyer. And it was just like this like head explode, like <laughs> galaxy brain, like, what did I just spend the last four years doing? <laughs> so, um, oh no, yeah, I didn't take the LSAT. I didn't take it. Um, and I really didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I knew it was not that. So, um, uh, it was also 2009 and that meant that there were no jobs. It was the it was the height of the recession. There were literally no jobs for anybody, let alone anybody entry level. Um, even if I wanted to work for the EPA, the government was on a hiring freeze. Like nobody would talk to me because I tried. Still, uh, you know, like there was nowhere to go and nothing to do. And you know, student loans you got to start paying those back like immediately. And while my tuition was covered, like I still had like book fees and like campus food program fees that I had to pay for, and so they were coming for me. So I was like, all right, well, the other thing that I really wanted to do was the Peace Corps, so I'll do that now. Um, so I joined the Peace Corps after university. I was deployed to Ecuador, um, southern Ecuador. Uh, and there was a lot of stuff that happened there. I, I'm not going to get into it, but I would say if you're considering Peace Corps, dear listener, maybe consider something else. Maybe consider like wolfing or something marginally safer. Uh Peace Corps, at least, you know, in the, the mid-2000s, did not have its stuff together. And when that happens in that kind of situation, it's actually life-threatening. So consider. Um, but a really important thing happened while I was there, and that is that I was exposed to um, local indigenous culture and local living mythology. So not like the ancient Greeks where Zeus has been Zeus for the last 5,000 years or whatever. The living mythology is very different. Um, you interact with it. It you poke it. It pokes you. Um, it changes. The stories evolve. The deities evolve. The spirits evolve. And the people's relationship with this deity, this presence, like evolves too. And it was something totally like I had never experienced before. And I've always loved writing. And I've always loved myth. Like like I still have some textbooks that I picked up on my own in university where I'd highlighted like all this myth knowledge. So again, this parallel self that was just been like submerged finally was like out in the open and was like, cool, I'm going to learn all about this stuff. So I was invited to a few medicine ceremonies, um, ayahuasqueros. <laughs> so I did, I did ayahuasca for this first time. And that was really crazy because I'd never even smoked a cigarette before at that point. I was very naive. So I was just like, what's this? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, you know, learn a bunch of sacred medicine songs and like just all kinds of cool stuff. And so when I left Peace Corps, I was like, what do I do with this? I have to do something with this. I am driven towards wherever this is leading me. And by this point, you know, I'd gotten over the shame of like not sticking to the lawyer path, the the path that my parents wanted. And they were concerned, but mostly they're just like, we don't understand what you're doing right now. And I was like, okay, okay. But I started feeling forward. 
is the best way I can describe it. Like I didn't know exactly what it was, but I knew some part of me was like pointing a direction. And I was like, okay, we're going to go that direction. I'm going to, I'm going to intuitively lean in to whatever this is. And so that resulted in me going to graduate school uh, at Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara for a PhD in myth, (laughs) in mythology, which it turns out that is a thing. I had no idea, but it was what I was looking for, like to a T. Pacifica is a very special school. Like if you get to know these folks very well, I mean, highly, highly accredited professors who have been in their field sometimes 50 years, like the best mythologists you can find, like legit. But also the school was founded because, well, the founder did an LSD trip in the 70s and decided that we needed this kind of school. So, I, you know. <laughs> I mean, why not? This is the best story. This is the best story. <laughs> <laughs> so I basically went to like Hogwarts for real people. Um, it was the best way I can describe it. Um, and... During that time, I also got involved with uh, writing for tabletop RPGs, so role-playing games. So all that old role-playing that I used to do online and all the LARPing I used to do in person kind of rolled up into a skill that other people were asking for. Like, I didn't go out and be like, hire me for RPGs. I was hanging out with my community really online on Google+, and they were like, hey, will you write this for me? And I was like, I don't know, like... Yeah, I'm not a, I don't write RPGs, but there is real insistence. And so I remember the first time I completed a paid piece of RPG writing work, that same phenomenon happened when I got that notebook for that poem. I had the check in my hand uh, and I was like, oh, I like this. (laughs) (laughs) And so what was happening was I was just getting this tremendous education in basically structural tourist storytelling, because that's what mythology is largely about. It's about psychology. It's about story structures that endure and why they endure. Like, why does something become a myth? What power behind it makes it stay? And also, what kinds of myths people tell for what reasons? Uh, you know, g- uh, class and gender and all of this stuff is mixed up in this big soup. And I was seeing so many parallels and so many lessons that I could apply from my graduate work to games specifically, like the psychology of players and how to get them to show vulnerability or how to get them to explore and ideate uh, with their active imagination, which is a very union thing. And I was just seeing these parallels between those two things and also like real living mythology and living religion. Like, uh, you know, voodoo possession is when a god rides you around and you experience, you know, as this god, It's not the same, to be clear, but like there is a similar mechanism happening when you are LARPing and you are so far in your character that that character has autonomy. And I think anyone who's LARPed hard enough knows what I'm talking about. Like those atomic features come out uh, and you're like, hmm, I didn't know they were going to do that, but that's cool. Um, So I sensed a confluence, a confluent space, and it was really activating to me. And I was like, does no one else see this? No one, is no one else connecting these dots? I was like the guy with like the red threads on the, on the cork board going like conspiracy theories. <laughs> um, and each side thought I was kind of nuts. Like my graduate program was like games. Okay. And games were like union depth psychology. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, trust me guys, trust me. And so what ended up happening is I ended up working on Bluebeard's Bride, 
uh, with Marissa Kelly and Sarah Richardson, which is a horror tabletop RPG based off of the fairy tale of Bluebeard, which we had learned about in graduate school. And we learned the psychology of why it's so activating. And we learned the mythological structures of how it works. And so we applied that directly to its design. Like we actually like lifted the union concept of complexes, which is like the little damaged parts inside of our hearts and minds and made them actual characters <laughs> running around in this game. Um, and it worked extremely well. Um, Bluebeard's Bride at this point, I think, is a pretty well-regarded game. It's won a whole bunch of awards, including Game of the Year, and it's still in print. Uh, you know, came out in 2017, so we're doing good. And after the success of Bluebeard's Bride, I was like, okay, this is my deal. Uh, so I want to do this deal, but I don't want to do it in tabletop where the pay is really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do it in a way that's sustainable, where I have a check every month and health insurance. And so what that meant was making the transition to video games. So I started making a soft transition around 2016, doing freelance here and there, building up my reputation, building up my credits. Um, and then in 2018, I went over to video games full-time, became FTE uh, at a company called Eline Media, where we made uh, a diving game called Beyond Blue. And that's that's kind of it. I was full-time game narrative designer forever, uh, since that point. And I think now that I'm really deep into this career and fairly high up in a fairly short amount of time, like it's not the average way to to make your way up the ranks. Um, you would have to pull me out of here, like kicking and screaming. Like, like <laughs> I would I would put up a fuss because this is a, this is a resplendent soup uh, that I get to play with uh, with my different uh, knowledges and masteries and and doing something that I feel like is unique. Uh, with a unique perspective. So so that's my story <laughs> of how I became a narrative designer <laughs> for video games. Yay, that's awesome. I love how there's just so many different layers to that story. Um, and one of the threads that I really want to pull is when you're talking about how um, the way that living spiritualities and religions, like sort of that mechanism is very similar to when you're LARPing um, and and probably some tabletop uh, gaming too, depending on like how deep you get into it. And that really resonates with me because I was thinking about how, for instance, I, I remember hearing this and and I know it's true, but I can't remember like the exact citation, but somebody talking about how the theater actually came out of religious ritual where ritual masking um, probably yeah, where where you like you're like I am taking on the guise of this god this goddess this deity whatever and I am acting them out and they are embodying me and you know maybe I am acting out you know some part of their biography or something that they are doing that relates to the time of year that we're in and the ritual that we're doing and whatever mm -hmm. and that eventually evolved in the theater and I love the idea of you know taking that same energy and thinking about how that works in a game space too because it's, you know, again, it's not exactly the same because it's not spiritual, but like mm -hmm. the, the way that it works in your brain is probably very similar. Yes. And I think personally, as an academic and as a, as a professional practitioner, that the lines are much blurrier than we maybe think. Yeah, definitely. Um, and also, I just, when I think about any time where I'm like, okay, I have to I have to embody this. I was thinking about like, I'm putting on this head because that's the, in my spiritual tradition, there are a lot of um, animal heads on human bodies and people are like, what's that about? And I'm like, that's literally just a priest, a priestess, a whoever who has taken on the head of 
that um that deity that they're trying mm-hmm. to invoke. Like that's literally what that means. It's not necessarily that there was really a lion-headed lady running around. <laughs> yeah. So it would be cool, but <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I do want to mention for clarity, uh, because I decided to go forward with Bluebeard's Bride as commercial product, I actually got my master's with Pacifica and then dropped the PhD portion because mm-hmm. I didn't want to sit around and write about somebody else's work for another three years. Uh, I wanted to get in there and start doing things. So I don't have a PhD. I have a master's just, just in case for the record. (laughs) Cool. I admire anybody who goes back for a master's because every time I think about it, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to though. That's too much homework. (laughs) Uh, How about you, Aline? What threads do you want to pull on? Oh my gosh. I'm thinking about your path to narrative design and how different it is from the other narrative designer and games writers that I know. Like I know people who came up from like QA and learned about storytelling from helping to debug games or from people who wrote, um, who came from the writing side of things who actually started by writing novels and graphic novels and then pivoted into games. And the thing that I really love about it that is, I think, a thread throughout our podcast is that we societally get the message that there is a path to do a thing, and there's not. Like there are for a lot of a lot of things, there are right. Like becoming a lawyer, yes, you've got to you've got to do certain certain things. But for a lot of things, especially when you're talking about creative pre- professions, there isn't a path. And I think that's so cool. And I love your story. I love, I love that you were able to go in the direction you were pulled. You weren't following a path. You were tugged along, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think that's, yes, (laughs) I think that's amazing. And I think that there's a lot of beauty to that. It was really scary. I I mean, to be clear, like I was like, you know, you know, girl with tiger mom, does varsity sports all four years, laser gaze, knows exactly what I want to do because I'm telling myself that's what I want. Yeah. Right? That's one way of living life. It was leaving no room at all, zero room for listening, listening to what I wanted. And what ended up happening is a rebellion. Like if I had maybe talked to myself more and admitted what I really wanted, maybe some other medium, you know, uh, would have come out of that. But because I was so hardcore one way, there is no room for anything other than like, nope, the brain says no. Um, and then once that happened, I really had to shift my perspective on life and adapt to, to thinking in a really different way. And it was absolutely a risk to like, I'm going to be pulled by a thread towards nebulous something mythology over there with, you know, a, an advanced degree that costs more than a house and maybe it'll work out or like maybe I'll be like, you know, teaching kindergarten or <laughs> something really obscure like at parochial school. So I think I got lucky. And I think also like allowing myself to be led worked. Um, And I don't think it works for everybody and not everybody can take those risks. Like I basically have no safety net. So this was my shot. And I just happened to get really lucky and land my shot. But there's lots of people who could have been on my same trajectory and taken the same shot and not landed. The interesting thing is, 
we don't like uncertainty in America because, you know, we're all one bad hospital visit away from being homeless. Um, And so one of the things that I see happening in my industry right now is we are codifying a path to games. There are lots of university programs now um, who, who say you get this degree, you'll be ready for games. Here's your path. It's the path. And um, it's sort of like below my generation and on where this is starting to happen. And I, I have mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, codifying our knowledge is great because we're still actually a pretty nascent industry, like compared to film as entertainment, right? We have so much to learn. We, it's going to take a couple hundred years, maybe. And um, we're figuring out how to do entertainment in this way. Um, on the other hand... The literal, literal, liberal arts are being gutted out of almost every university program. And I don't know any technical field that needs liberal arts more than games. Like, like you have to have it if you're going to be successful, in my opinion. Whether you're a programmer or a writer or a QA or you're working with Maya, like, you don't, if you're not taught how to be creative, uh, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> and so... You know, I, I work with some of these programs and I mentor some of their students and I look at their capstone projects and I'm just kind of like a little bit worried, I will say. I'm a little bit worried. My concentration, my degree is in technical writing, so very dry writing. Um, and my concentration is in graphic design. And I've actually, I don't have a master's degree, but I have enough expertise that the university where I taught deemed me able to teach. So I have taught in the program where I got my graphic design concentration. That was really complicated. Mm -hmm. But they... No, I got you. I'm with um, you. um, uh, I I haven't done that since I moved to Seattle. So it's been four years. But at the time I left, they were in the process of talking about how to create or integrate um, game design into their graphic design program. And I was just like, it's more than coding pixels on a screen. It's, it's much more, much more. And and a game, you know, (laughs) and, and this was like just after Gamergate. And so you're talking about like, the definition for what is a game is, you know, te- is text on a screen a game? Is, you know, The Last of Us a game? Is, like, what is a game? Um, and so it's really interesting to me that, like, yeah, I can see why, one, universities want to capitalize on this because it is um, an attractive industry, Um from like the outside looking in, like you're you're a teenager playing video games and you're like, oh, cool, I want to do that. That looks really neat. Um, and like you want to get students. So yeah, you're going to teach them what they want to do. But like I get, I can see a lot of the problems that are inherent in that as a person who is very skeptical of a formalized education kind of in general. Yeah. <laughs> um, like there are a lot of pros to it. Like, um, like standardization of knowledge is important in a lot of ways, but um, our entire last episode of originality, Tempest and I were talking about how um, standardized education is also a, a way to create standardized people that, uh, 
really reduces the way that creative thinking happens. And so, well, they tried with us and they failed. <laughs> you failed, America. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And um, so, it's it's your point about having liberal arts education while trying to have uh, a games writing, games creation program in universities is like it's a complex problem. And I don't like how are they going to solve that without requiring it being a like a six year program you know um it, it's um it's interesting and it's i i'm curious to see as the programs mature the caliber of people entering the workforce and what problems they encounter as a result. Yeah, well, I'll say this right now, and this is to not disrespect any student who's graduating or any school, but, like, the caliber overall is not that great for getting placement in uh, a company. And for that reason, when we hire, we may look and see, oh, yeah, you got that degree. We want to know what you can actually do today, and can you demonstrate it? And if you can demonstrate it, we do not care one fig if you have a degree in game design or not. And again, that may change in the future. Our industry changes so fast. But mm-hmm. we don't use those as a weather vane right now for for placeability because the programs really are not there yet overall. Like, they're trying. They're trying to figure it out. And I <laughs> I, I help. Uh, and I'm, I'm for them succeeding. But, like, we're, like, the quality of candidates, it, it's rough right now. Yeah. And I imagine something, you know, in the future, something happening along the lines of what happened when blogging became big, because um, I was hired as a journalist at a fancy print magazine that has been around since the 1800s, wherever, not really, but because uh, it's called Laptop Magazine. So I guess they didn't have laptops in the 1800s, but... Mm-hmm. Um, no, they did. They were writing desks, Tempest. Oh, okay. There we go. <laughs> so I got hired there, you know, at, at first as a as a well, like a reporter. Um, I ran the blog. I did, you know, news items and stuff like that, all without having ever set foot in journalism school. And though, m- like, most of the people who were above me did go to journalism school, a lot of the people who were doing the same work that I did never went to journalism school. But they had been doing, you know, consumer blogging since whatever. And that was more important. Like, nobody was like, what's your degree? And it was more like, oh, let's see samples of what you work and what you do. Like, I... I literally got hired because I was the only person who came in for the interview who knew what a netbook was. And I had my netbook on me. I was like, I carried this around <laughs> everywhere. They were so impressed. So yeah, it's like, it. you know, it. in some industries, yeah, there probably would have been a time where I wouldn't have even been considered because I hadn't been to journalism school. Mm-hmm. But at the point where I ended up slipping in, they were just like, we just need writers. We need good writers. Can you prove that you're a good writer? Look at all these lovely clips. Okay, come on over here. You're hired. Mm-hmm. And I and it seems like that's really, you know, what's going on with, you know, gaming right now. Yes, and I think so. Maybe, maybe even if it gets like more sort of codified or whatever, it'll still go back to that, hopefully, someday. <laughs> um, and just in general, like, because, you know, in thinking about what what kind of like if you had an ideal education that you would want to give someone who wanted to come work um, in video games um, you know, I think about 
the the university that I went to, NYU, I was at the Gallatin School for Individualized Study. So if I was going mm-hmm. to like put together the individualized study degree of someone's dreams so that I could go work in a gaming studio, what what kind of skills do you feel like are the things that people really need to know beyond like, can you code if you're going to code and can you write if you're going to write? Yeah. So I think no matter if you're going to code or if you're going to write, that there are two core things that you do need. One of them is some exposure to the liberal arts, whether it's like art history, literature, film, uh, you know, philosophy is a great one. I know everyone thinks philosophy is useless. It's not because it's how you structure design thinking. Um, and the other is, is coding or scripting. Like, uh, Everyone at a, at a games company benefits from coding and scripting, even writers who don't use it all the time, because you can communicate with your engineers about the structure of what you're writing. Games are very, very interdisciplinary. We're all one big symbiotic worm thing. And the more that we can communicate, that's the third thing, communication skills. Um, uh, the better the game is, the better the project is, the better our relationships are. So yeah, I would say there does need some be some hard tech skills for everybody, including writers. There does need to be some liberal arts for everybody, including engineers. And there needs to be a lot of devotion put into learning communication. Um, And, you know, that could go in many ways. You could go like, you know, psychology or sociology or IO psych or or actual communication studies. But like, like those are, that's the triumvirate that makes a studio work. So uh, I think that's what I would start with. Awesome. Another thread I wanted to pull, um, something that Aline mentioned about how you were like being, you know, pulled along this this path um, and you didn't necessarily have a safety net. It reminds me, speaking of Jungian psychology, of um, Joseph Campbell. And because uh, I, I remember when I read The Power of Myth, because I read it, I read the book that they put out after the special. So um, yeah, I had I, that book too. I got it in high school. It was yeah. a big deal. Yeah, it was. It was like, yeah, I read that, like, I think my freshman year. Uh, And so he talks in there about um, following your bliss. And Mm -hmm. basically, from my memory, what he said is, is that what is it that you want to do most in the world? Whatever that thing is, you were put on this earth to do that thing. That's why you want it. So you need to follow your bliss. You need to just throw caution to the wind and do that thing, whatever it is that you want to do. Now, of course, you say this to people and the first thing people are like, I can't follow my bliss. I have to pay my rent. I have to buy food and whatever. And all of that is true. Um, Also, it's much easier to follow your bliss if you are a trust fund, cisgender, white, male who is able-bodied, right? Like Mm -hmm. you got the money, you have the privilege, whatever. But I really took that to heart when I read it. And I really like, I've basically done that since high school and it's worked out for me, but it's, it was a very long path, but it seems like, you know, you were doing the same. And even though you didn't have like a financial safety net, it sounds like you, like me, had a very good family safety net. Like no matter what happened to me in my life, I knew that if I needed to come home and live in my grandmother's house, I could. Um, You know, if like all of my money went flying out of the window, that was not going to be a problem. So I always had the support of family, even if Mm -hmm. I didn't always have that financial cushion. Yes. Uh, Was it the same for you? Yeah. So uh, my mom didn't speak to me for like two months when I told her I was not going to be a lawyer. 
Uh, it was not good. But afterwards, you know, everything was pretty much fine. Like, um, and it is true that I could come crawling back to my parents and live in one of my my old bedroom, dear God, um, which I actually did in interstitial periods when I was like moving between university and Peace Corps and Peace Corps where I'm back and Peace Corps to, um, you know, graduate school. So like I availed myself of those resources. Um, but for me, it was very shameful because I was the, you know, scholarship straight A kid who was going to make all the money and take care of my ailing parents. <laughs> like that's a, that's a cultural thing that I grew up with where you're just expected to figure it out and take care of them. Um, ironically now I'm making very good money as a narrative director of video games and can do that. But for a while there, I was just, uh, I learned to like, listen to my intuition Basically, I gave it I gave it some some rope and I said, OK, I'm giving you enough rope to both maybe accomplish the thing we want to accomplish, but also to maybe hang ourselves. And I reserve the right to pull back on that rope if I really feel like we're not going anywhere. But let's see how this works out. And that was the big fundamental. I don't want to say spiritual, maybe maybe spiritual, maybe mental change between my earlier self who was just like, I'm going to do all the things and accomplish all the things because that's what's expected to like, I'm going to feel my way forward. What do I feel? Because before, like feelings were not cool. <laughs> we didn't acknowledge those. And now I think I feeling is what lets me be a great artist. It's why I'm good at this. We don't learn how to do that. You don't. Oh, you don't. There's no course to te- that teaches no. you this. No, things? we are sadly lacking in emotional education. <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. all true. Yeah, and I think that that's you know that's sort of the core of the thing with you know follow your bliss is that yeah you do have to trust your intuition um, and and really think about like what is the thing that that gives me this much pleasure that I would like just do it and have to have some suffering you know, maybe for a time in order to be able to do it, but just to do it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. The uncertainty is not something I like, but it's something that was very fruitful. Yeah. And that's, that's always the balance. Cause like, I don't like uncertainty either. And I don't like being out of control. Like I need to have control, but sometimes you do have to just sort of throw control up into the air. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, either it's going to work out or it isn't, and you've done all the things that you can do to sort of lay that foundation. But then at some point it's just, it's out of your hands. And Mm -hmm. so all you can do is hope that you've done like enough groundwork that it's going to be awesome. Yes. (laughs) So what is, uh, I know you said you're, you're not going to be plucked from gaming ever. They will have to drag you (laughs) kicking and screaming. Um, But what are some other things that you want to do um, either as a narrative designer or in, in some other aspect of video games? Yeah, so there's a lot of things that I want to do, and not all of them in- include video games. Uh, so my goal eventually is to, you know, be the creative director of my own project at, a, you know, a decent studio that is either my studio or one that, you know, lets me really be the creative director on a project, a real vision. Um, everybody has different kinds of skills in narrative design. One of my stronger skills is vision. And what that means is really bringing together a coherent whole that has meaning. I care about meaning a lot as an artist, and I'm always trying to infuse something that I'm doing with meaning that when someone, you know, at the other end of the telegraph who gets the information from their experience goes, I feel a new thing, or I have a new insight, or I've grown in this way, or I've let go of this thing, something, 
That is, you know, again, that word transmutation has transmuted something for them. I, for me, that's the goal of art uh, and the goal of my art. So why I chose video games for that, I don't know. But, uh, you know, here we are. I am also writing an, a nonfiction book right now. You know, I have an agent and it's um, it's a how to create your first tabletop RPG because I think uh, other people should be able to make games. There are lots of different perspectives that we should codify into art and I want as many people as possible to give it a shot. And then, you know, I, I creatively wrote prose for a really long time. Uh, and at some point I would really love to get back to that either short stories, um, you know, novellas or novels. Novels are the big BMF. I don't know about that, but um, <laughs> I really love science fiction and fantasy, speculative, you know, and um, sort of like anything that's not normal, <laughs> normal life. I love writing about surrealism, especially. My goodness, I love surrealism. So I have things in me. The problem is all of my units, all of my energy blocks are being used for my full-time job right now. And I'm not complaining. I love this job. I'm, I'm creating an amazing product. Um, but the other things are kind of sitting in the wings waiting and either I need to do some restructuring in my life or I allow for both my full-time work, my part-time dev work. Cause I work on indie projects too. And the writing and the D E and I advocacy I do and what I don't want to do is push it so far that I'm just miserable all the time. I want, I've learned from doing that previously. You know, you only have so much so much road that you can travel nope. in a day. And so all of my blocks are currently used up. But that doesn't mean that there can't be a refactoring or a reorganization at some point in the future. I mean, especially with, as you know, Tempest, my life is actually not totally centered in the United States. Um, my husband and I help run a nonprofit in India outside of Bangalore, that is um, a boarding school for Dalit or um, untouchable caste children that is very high intensity, uh, is in a lot of work. And we will at some point be over there, you know, fully immersed in that life, probably closer towards retirement. And I imagine I'm going to be sitting around maybe writing a lot of books. Maybe it will be like my third career. You know, uh, you're not old till you think you're old. So <laughs> so there's, I think, still a lot that I want to do uh, it, creatively in all kinds of different ways. I love soaking it all in. I love talking to people who are living their best lives and just hearing the uh, joy and enthusiasm. And we don't always do video when we record originality, but we are this time. And so I get to see Whitney as she's talking and her face, dear listeners, is just like she's just lit up as she's talking. I wish, you know, I wish <laughs> she could see it, but it's awesome to see this. So um, people who have, uh, been on journeys with me on my podcast career know that like I just I love listening to people so Whitney thank you for like sharing oh, all of this with us giving, like giving me space like this isn't <laughs> the end of the episode I know Tempest you've got another question but like thank you so much it just brings me joy to hear you hear you talk about what you love it's great oh yay <laughs> so one of the things I wanted to go back to is um talking about just like the way that gaming can allow you to like be in a completely different headspace um, to take on a character. And this, um, you know, works differently, but seems to have the same foundation, whether you're talking about tabletop role-playing, LARPing, live action role-playing, or playing video games. Um, because people, you know, especially with visual mediums, get 
very immersed in whatever character's viewpoint that you're supposed to have, right? And so I was wondering, like, how as someone who uh, designs games or works with people who design games, like, what are the things that go into making that space for the player. And I know, like, again, it's going to be different whether you're talking about like in person or, you know, if they're playing video mm-hmm. games, but like there have to be like some fundamentals that work across them all that just allow you to make that immersion happen in a way that people feel comfortable. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a, a consequence of the medium itself is that it just generally has higher immersion than a passive consumption, like a theater or a movie or a TV show. And for my purposes, that's great because I'm all about maximal impact. I, I want to impact you as hard as possible. I say I've won uh, if my game makes you cry because uh, I always try to make my game make somebody cry at some point. <laughs> but um, with making a space for the player, what's really important is to remember empathy. So a lot of people have this idea that like game designers are just like these dudes who play Call of Duty and have controllers and headsets on and aren't they so cool? Um, There are definitely folks like that, but also a lot of the best designers design from a place of understanding you need to be in the player's shoes at all time, which means you need powers of imagination and empathy to accomplish that. And as I said earlier, I'm really into vision, right? I have a vision, but the vision has to have a humility to it where it is in service to the player's agency, you can't just have like, here's my vision and I'm going to cram it down on the player so they can experience it the way that I want them to. Okay, player, take all of my vision. That's not really how it works. It's not a successful way to do games. With games, you have to seduce. You have to pull. You have to invite players to, to do what you want them to do because you always want them to do something. But you have to make it appealing to them to do the thing that you want. Um, and this is especially important if you're like luring the player towards a moment of vulnerability or an emotional scene or a scene about love or murdering someone who betrayed you, which, you know, like feelings. This I'm basically describing how you accomplish feelings uh, in a video game. And that is by making space. And it's not just being like, here, all your space, go do whatever you want. It's by carefully constructing space that kind of like flavors or lends like mood lighting or just kind of nudges a player towards the the mindscape, the mind place that you want them to occupy during this piece of the content. So it's kind of like a dance where you can't see your partner because they're in the future, right? Um, And you're planning out all the steps so that they can very care, like figure out what you want them to do, but also have expression in their moment in the future where you have no control. Uh, right. So that's part of the reason why I love game design, because I could have gone into Hollywood. I, you know, I worked in L.A. on scripts for a while, but this is so much more dynamic and I will never get bored learning and mastering how to do this really, really, really complex dance of human emotion, human psychology and human spirit, because it's just it's not a passive medium. We are we are interacting. And so I just find that space really, really exciting. Did that answer the question? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. It totally did. And I, I love it because I, I was also thinking about how 
you know, the the way that people relate to games in, in ways that I don't understand because my video game experience is like, I have played Super Mario Brothers and Mario Kart and, and such things as this. And so whenever I watch my friends playing like a really complicated game that is just like in this, and they're like, in this playthrough, I'm going to romance, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, mm-hmm. does that does that change the thing? They're like, yes, it changes the whole story if you romance this person instead of that person or you don't romance anybody at all. And I love that idea. And <laughs> sometimes when I look at like, the way that Star Trek conceptualizes how people are going to be like using the holodeck. I'm like, I don't think people are going to use the holodeck that way. I think the holodeck is going to be one big, like first person shooter game, except for maybe not a first person shooter. Cause they <laughs> maybe Starfleet people are like, we're tired of that. But, but like that more, that kind of immersive storytelling than just like the sort of one, one through way to the story. And so, yeah, it's like, it seems to me that if you, really just like want to be in control of what everybody is doing. Like you got to write a novel, but if you yeah, are, write a novel or do a film, <laughs> right? but you can't, but, but in order to be a good game designer, you have to be able to like nudge people, but not like force them. Yeah. It's kind of like being in an improv and being a good scene partner. You're setting up a really juicy scene by giving your scene partner the runway to take off. It's, it's kind of like that. You have to design from that place. Well, that is all the questions that I had. And this has been a super interesting conversation. And now all I want to do is like find the the best game design program that includes everything and be like, I'm going to go learn how to design games. <laughs> it's going to be great. So thank you so much, Strix, for joining us and sharing your story with us. And uh, I really look forward to seeing what other stuff you'll do in the future. And then maybe I will join you in India in retirement uh, to yeah. take care of <laughs> to take care of awesome kids and also sit around and write books. Yes, that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> and thank you uh, to our listeners for joining us as well. Uh, you can always find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is Originality FM. And my Twitter handle is at Tiny Tempest. And Aline's Twitter handle is at Aline. And Strix, do you want to give us your Twitter handle? And also, where else can people find you other than the Twitters? For sure. So my Twitter handle is the underscore Strix, S-T-R-I-X. And you will next be able to see me at Comic-Con San Diego, where I will be speaking. Woohoo! Comic-Con! Woohoo! Fun. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, Aline. Thank you. For just being awesome. (laughs) And we'll see you all next time. All right. Take care, folks.